0: Good evening. Uh, it's a little chilly in here, but I can hear the whistling of the furnace, so it sounds like something's working. Uh, if you do not know who I am, or if I have not met you yet, my name is Naman Cho, uh, and it's probably because I'm the newest member on staff, fresh to Pittsburgh, so uh, I'm looking forward to meeting you, if I haven't done so already. Uh, it is a privilege of, of mine to, to walk us through God's Word tonight, uh, which you'll find there printed in your bulletin on page 5, and i I'll read the scripture passage for us today, and as is custom at our church, if you were to respond at the end uh, with thanks be to God. Let's read from Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will." And my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, again, a little bit more about myself. If you don't know why or what brought us to Pittsburgh, uh, what brought us to City of Florence specifically, is that I'm starting a, a new college ministry at Carnegie Mellon, uh, specifically for a lot of our undergrad students that are there. So if you find yourself in that camp, I especially would love to meet you. Uh, but in the, over the course of the past couple of weeks, as, as I've been meeting our students that have been coming, a common question that I ask them is, how are you doing? How, how is the semester going? Like, how's how has your week been? And the, the very common answer I get is, man, I, I, it's been super busy. I am swamped. Uh, I'm doing A, B, and C. And the list goes on. And the bulk of our meeting just kind of talks about what they're doing and, and all these things that they're responsible for. Uh, and their response is not unlike what we would kind of, answer for ourselves. If we were to ask each other, if you were to ask yourselves, how am I doing? What are you up to? You you kind of go through that laundry list of things that you have going on this week, next week, next month. Uh, And in fact, if our answer were to be to that question, how are you doing? What are you up to? If if our answer to that question would be not much at all. I actually have a lot of time on my hands. I'm not really doing much of anything. A lot of us would have two different responses to that kind of answer. It's either jealousy, like how are you doing what you're doing and how can I get there? Or it's judgment. Oh man, what are you doing with your time? And so if you find yourself in one of those camps, it's very telling of how our society today views work but also views rest. Are you being efficient with your time? Are you being productive with your time? Is rest efficient? Are you taking ample time to rest? Is that even a category in your mind? And so, may have grabbed your attention right now, and and for a lot of people um, that come from Christian circles, turn to this very passage to seek rest. Jesus explicitly says, I will give you rest. So this is a go-to passage that we find. But But what I want to explore tonight is, yes, this passage, and Jesus is offering rest. But what kind of rest is he actually offering? What kind of rest is he talking about here? And I want to look at this in a couple of ways. First, I want to look at this, this big idea of rest, macro rest, as I'm calling it, uh, and more as it pertains to salvation. Secondly, we'll, we'll look at the rest of Sabbath that we're looking at and sort of the smaller micro rest. And lastly, we'll look at how to apply that to ourselves. Macro rest and salvation, micro rest and Sabbath, and lastly, to close it off in some practical application. <clears throat> if you'll turn back with me, and verses 25 to 27. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the son except the Father, and no one knows a father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, we find ourselves a little bit about, out of context. Uh, of where this is happening in the Gospel of Matthew. And in the life of Jesus, Jesus is in the the bulk of his ministry. He has just given the Sermon on the Mount, his kind of famous sermon um, to the masses. He's also given his discourse to his disciples, giving them further instruction of how to go about their ministry. And now Jesus is first uh, witnessing the first sense of opposition in his ministry. And this is the prayer that comes right after that. So people are beginning to question his authority, question what he's doing, and this is the very prayer that, that we find Jesus praying. And so that's another thing to notice is that this, this passage, uh, yes, it is an invitation to come to me all, you are, all who are weary and, and heavy laden. That's a very familiar verse for us. But we also have to remember that this is in the form of a prayer that Jesus is praying to God himself. And so we find two big ideas in, in Jesus' prayer. And first, we find a difference in between those who are wise and understanding and to those who Christ is calling children, little children. During the course of Jesus' ministry, he runs into these two kinds of people, those who were wise and those who he would consider children. The scripturally savvy scribes and Pharisees of the time, the religious aristocracy, if you will, versus the 12 ordinary fishermen who are maybe even seemingly gullible to follow along with Jesus. Or the self-sufficient and proud versus the humble and the ones who are dependent, who are wanting to learn, wanting to be taught. Um, one of the very things that kind of attracted me to doing ministry at CMU is this culture, this, this storyline that a lot of these students am finding, because it's very much a story like my own. Uh, I grew up in a a very small town in Connecticut, in the suburbs. Uh, The schooling system was was really competitive, and so by the time it came to apply for colleges and and to go, and when I went to undergrad, I felt uh, pretty good about myself. I uh, graduated near the top of my class, I had great grades, I had all these, uh, I had register of AP classes and all these extracurricular activities in my resume. But when I got to college, I realized everybody else did the same thing. And as I'm talking to CMU students, they're realizing the same thing. I am no longer the big fish of the pond. I am just but a small fish in a larger ocean. Have we ever had that moment where we have just all of a sudden been humbled by by those around us? Or circumstances that we find ourselves where we actually have no control over what we're doing? Where we were kind of resting on our own laurels, our own wisdom, our education maybe it was, our... Our credentials. This is the exact dichotomy that Jesus is finding himself encountering with these people: those who are wise and understanding in their own rights, or those who are willing to be taught, those who are ready to listen, the little children dependent on every word of Christ. The other big idea that we see in Jesus's prayer is that access to the Father is through and only through the Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, that was all in verse 27 there and so for the Jews listening to to Jesus say this <clears throat> they they heard they would hear this promise from him and they would hear that man access to God is possible this is exactly what they were searching for the whole time since the beginning of their history since creation the communion with with God was lost in the fall as sin entered the world, The relationship that we were to be able to be in the full presence of God was broken and we were cast out. So access to God was something that was very attractive for Jewish people at that time. They were seeking to restore that access, to restore that peace, or restore that shalom, as you may have heard. Shalom, as one scholar would say, is a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens the doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom is a state where things are restored back to the way that things were originally intended. So imagine if you were a Jewish person at that time and hearing Jesus say this, I am, a, I am making a way back to God. No one knows the Father except through me was something that you would have considered lost and actually were looking for. But you would have responded to it in one of two ways. In utter shock and opposition how could someone have such audacity to make that claim for utter awe and worship? The Messiah is here, the one who is coming to restore what we have lost. Um, a lot of people will view this idea, this theological idea, um, and, and kind of point out the exclusivity in it. And I'm, I'm more than willing to kind of unpack that more in, in our Grill the Preacher session after this. And we take kind of exclusivity in a number of ways, uh, and I've kind of categorized it in one of two ways. Uh, it, raise a hands, who in here has an iPhone? And if, if you're familiar with Apple products, you're familiar with the fact that you need a lightning cable, you need uh, the certain accessories to charge your phone, to do anything that you want to with your phone. And so when we think about that kind of exclusivity, man, we you, you have to kind of have the right gadgets, have the right credentials and and badges to kind of be in that same camp. And so that kind of exclusivity is very unattractive for us. Uh, But the other kind of exclusivity that I like to think about is what I call the Chick-fil-A exclusivity. Uh, If you ever go to Chick-fil-A every now and again and and you pay for your meal and and you get a receipt, uh, that receipt offers you to take a survey and, and, and get a free sandwich. This exclusivity of the free sandwich. Like, there's no other way to get a free sandwich but if you just spend two minutes of your time filling out this survey. So in my mind, I was like, why wouldn't you do it? This is the way to a free sandwich. It's a different optimistic way of viewing what Christ is offering here. So wherever you lay, I don't know, just a silly example, kind of you, some of you are chuckling right now, but whatever way you view this exclusivity in Christ, this is exactly what he's offering. Access back to the Father. Access back to the way things ought to be and they were intended to be. Maybe even access that we are searching for ourselves without even knowing it. So these are the two ways that we find people responding to Jesus in his ministry at that time. There was no in between. You were either the wise fool insisting on his or her own way or the dependent child seeking every good thing from a loving father. You either knew Christ or you did it. So, what does this have to do with rest? What does this have to do with this idea of rest and restoration? We'll continue on in the ever familiar verses of 28 through 30, if you read along with me. <clears throat> Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ offers rest in the form of a yoke. Uh, For us modern 21st century people, a yoke for anybody in a Jewish farming context would know very well that this was kind of this farming tool, this wooden beam that they would put across the shoulders of animals to help pull a plow or a till or whatever it was to kind of help ease that process along. Uh, But it's very curious that Jesus would use the imagery of a yoke. Jesus is actually offering rest in the form of work. Isn't that a little bit oxymoronic? Why didn't Jesus just say, uh, take my mattress upon you? Take my vacation home among you. Take my PTO. All of it. Um, No, but Christ offers a yoke. What exactly is he doing here? First, he's appealing to his audience. He knows who his audience is. He knows what they're involved in. So this would have been a very prominent image in, in a lot of their minds. But also back in the day, a yoke was a metaphor for the, to- the sum total of somebody's obligations. Sum total of somebody's ob- obligations. So by offering his own yoke, Christ is saying that his yoke, his sum total... Of obligations is lighter than what is being offered by the wise and understanding. It's lighter than what the Pharisees are offering. Uh, The Pharisees at the time, they took the law, the Torah, and they added their own series of commentaries on it, uh, oral and and written traditions of kind of like these add on rules, if you will, of the law. Uh, And when it came to Sabbath, when it came to rest, for instance, there were 39 specific prohibitions that these Pharisees were uh, putting onto those who read it and who believed in it. Some of them excluded farming, cooking, cleaning, making clothing, preserving food, writing, or even igniting or in- extinguishing a fire. These were ba- very basic activities that a Jewish person would find in their day-to-day life. We might equate them today uh, with using electricity, talking on our cell phones, driving our cars, what have you. But what are the Pharisees doing? They're trying to micromanage salvation. They're trying to take what they have been given by God in the law of God through Moses and adding their own stipulations on it to make salvation achievable. Here's this 12-step program that you can follow to find true rest that we're promising. And what the Jewish people found at the time was it was more than 12 steps. It was 39 steps. It was 99 steps. It was a thousand steps to get to wear this heavy yoke. And Christ is offering a lighter yoke. Uh, a mentor of mine told me a story one time where he was sitting at dinner, uh, getting ready for his wife was getting uh, dinner ready. <clears throat> he has three daughters, and, and one of them was, was sitting with him, his youngest. And the two oldest were upstairs. And so he he goes to his youngest daughter, Charlotte. He says, Charlotte, go call your sisters. It's time for dinner. So Charlotte goes. um, And instead of going upstairs and and, and getting her sisters to come down, from the bottom of the stairs, she yells, Girls, time for dinner. Come on down. But as teenage girls as they were, they weren't coming down. So she comes back to the table. And her dad asks her, where are your sisters? She's like, they weren't listening. He's like, well, okay, we'll go get them again. And she does this a couple times, until the last time what she does is, Girls, come on down for dinner, or else you're in big trouble. Why do we share this? He never told his sister to tell his other sisters, that his daughter, that his other sisters, that they were going to be in big trouble if they didn't come down. She added that stipulation herself. It's a very human reaction for us to think about what is attractive to what is life-giving, what is attainable, uh, and to make it micromanageable, make it within our grasp, put it within our reach. And this is exactly what the wise and understanding people that Jesus was encountering was doing. It took more work for them uh, to find rest according to their Sabbath laws. They created this legalistic paradigm that promoted a works-based Righteousness. Added more regulations to it. So what Christ is offering is a lighter yoke. A lighter sum total of obligations. Um, but what that, what that means is that it's not to say, okay, well then, I won't be a Pharisee. I'll just kind of live my own way. I'll do my own thing. Uh, if you were with us this morning for the worship service uh, at the TCC, Joseph preached on this idea of temptation and, and following our hearts. And, and the lies that we have been told by Disney as kids growing up to follow our hearts. Uh, it doesn't mean that the, the answer to the pharisaical problem is to follow our hearts and live our own ways. Because what Jesus exactly is exactly saying is that regardless of where you go, where, where you land on that spectrum, whether utter works righteousness and wisdom or free, licentious, follow your own heart style living, you're going to be yoked to something. Your satisfaction is is going to rule you in some way or another. And so what Christ is offering is a third way, his own yoke. As uh, Augustine has famously said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So this first idea of rest that Jesus is offering is this very picture of salvation, of access to God the Father through Jesus Christ View through this idea of rest, through this toil, through all of the sum total of our obligations, whatever they may be, what are they for you? Your career, relationships, your family, your credentials, these are all good things that God has given us to steward, but when we make that and only those things the sum total of our obligations, is that yoke too heavy for us to bear? Do we ever find satisfaction in that? And so this first idea of rest that we see is in Jesus Christ himself. Rest in Jesus. Rest in a yoke that is lighter, that doesn't have us fulfill all of these stipulations, that doesn't have us micromanage perfection, which we can't, but it's to take on a humble and lowly and childlike deposition to Christ himself. Rest in the form of salvation in Jesus. So as we move on to Sabbath rest, a, a smaller picture of, of rest uh, as, as Christ is offering here for those who are burdened and, and heavy laden. Where do we see that in, in all of scripture? Uh, I'll point us to two uh, specific examples. One being uh, the creation narrative. Since the b- very beginning of time, as, as Andy alluded to before, um, God has made us. God has planted us in this world to subdue it. That is very true. But even before that, as God is creating the world as he did so uh, in the first six days of creation, he is showing us, he is modeling for us this idea of work. That because God was a cosmic worker, God was this diligent worker that actually puts inherent value in the work that we do. That we can be diligent. We can, be, uh, we can strive for excellence in the things that we do. That the, that the work that we pursue here is not for, for waste, but because God has, has given that work meaning in life, so too we can follow. But on the seventh day, he also rests. He sabbaths. Not because he got tired, not because he had to, but he's also modeling for us this idea that work doesn't rule our lives. Work isn't the full week. But work is this idea of completion, uh, of, of holiness. And actually, if we overwork to not rest, is inhumane, is against the grain in which God has created us. Sabbathing in this idea coming from the very beginning of creation. Another uh, instance that we see in Sabbath in Scripture altogether is specifically in the Ten Commandments. Commandment number four uh, keep the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath, and keep it holy. So actually, not to Sabbath is to break the commandment of God. If we think about all of those commandments, we, we think of you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, do not lie, do not covet. And I'm good on all those things. But Sabbath, okay, if I have time next week, I'll do it. But it's a very commandment of God. And so when we do not Sabbath, when we do not rest, we are disobeying God Himself. And I've, as I was reflecting on this for myself, uh, it, it just becomes very prominent. And as a pastor, and as somebody in ministry, I thought about it. If I were to break all the other commandments, I would probably get fired. But if I broke the fourth commandment, it might actually get overlooked. That's the kind of culture, society, that we live in today, is this excuse, this uh, justification of of work, because we feel like we, we just, there's one more project, one more paper to read, one more article, one more whatever it is. And that rest is is optional, rest is a luxury. But this idea that rest is holy, rest is something that God did himself. Rest is something that we need to fully be who God made us to be. Um, As we talk about commandments and obeying commands, um, another mentor friend of mine told me a story of, of while he was sitting with his son in his office one day, and his son, being very young at the time, asked his father, Dad, what, what do you like? What do you love? What, what makes you um, kind of go in this world? And his father thought about it for a second. He said, uh, I, like, I like the Red Sox. He was in Boston at the time. Uh, I like golfing. I like, I like eating. So the little boy thinks. He ponders about it. He's like, okay. Well, so then what do you hate? He's like, uh, I hate the Yankees. Um, I hate it when uh, people steal my parking spot uh, I hate it when I have <clears throat> uh, all these laundry lists of things to do and, and I don't get them done in time and so the boy thinks about it and he ponders to mom and so his father got a little curious He said okay son what, what do you love what are the things that, that you like in this world and his son replies, you know, what he said he said I like the Red Sox I like watching golf. I like eating good food. And so his father asked him, what do you hate? He's like, I hate the Yankees. I hate when you don't get a parking spot, and I hate when you overwork. And what his father noticed in that time is that obedience isn't just about following the rules. I, I could preach to you, yes, follow the fourth commandment, do what it says because it's good for you. But obedience is actually coming to love the things that the father loves and hating the things that he hates as well. And so when we think about obedience, when we think about the Ten Commandments, when we think about this creation narrative, I want to invite you to not think about it so much as another rule to follow, another stipulation that you can micromanage, but another way to investigate the Father's heart. What are the things that our Father loves? And what are the things that our Father hates? And how has God created for us this idea of rest and salvation through Jesus Christ, but also rest in this idea of Sabbath Uh, for our own lives, which brings me to my last point, Um, practical application. Those are all very inspiring words, maybe, Um, but how do we do this? How do we apply this to our lives? I'm certainly not the expert on it, but some reflections uh, I had during the week. First, uh, we have to understand that we are tired, that we need rest. It, it sounds very simple. It sounds uh, almost too simple. But how often have, have we been going without stopping to think, stopping to recharge, stop, stopping to reflect? Are you f- tired physically? How long has it been since you've had a good solid, I don't know, eight hours of sleep? Are you tired mentally? You're the kind of person that kind of is always going mentally. You can sit and you can rest physically. But your mind is always racing. Or you're having trouble sleeping at night because you have all these things that you're thinking about and you're suffering from insomnia. Are you tired emotionally? Are there burdens that you are bearing for yourself, for your families, for your friends, for others? Again, all good things to empathize, to bear burdens of one another. But is it causing you to feel restless emotionally or spiritually? How are you doing spiritually? How are you doing with Jesus? When was the last time that you had a conversation with him? Let him really into investigating the things that are going on in your life? Feeling like you were coming to a worship service and actually feeling restored, feeling renewed by listening to God's word, by, by singing songs? Do we know that we are tired and are we aware of the fact that we do need rest? Uh, Second thing that I want us to think about is what really is your yoke? What is the sum total of your obligation? Again, popular answers. Career, relationships, community, family, money, or financial stability. Recognition, affirmation. Control, the five-year plan, the ten-year plan, the twenty-year plan. For comfort, maybe just to kind of be able to, to be and exist and, and not have any stress in our world. What is it that, that we strive for in the everyday? What is, it, what is the reason why we get up in the morning? What is it the reason why we do the things that we do? And how are those things viewed through the lens of Christ? Viewed through the lens that Jesus is the one that actually is the sum total of our obligations that we strive for. Uh, and lastly, to so practically think about where do we lie in the work Sabbath spectrum? Uh, chances are, if uh, you're on one side of it, you're probably not doing one well. You're either overworking and underresting, or you could be overresting and underworking. And, under um, and we, we turn back to creation as this duality, this balance between work and life. What are the rhythms that we need to take for those of us who are working too much to actually say this actually doesn't identify who I am so that if this fails or succeeds, my identity is in the one who calls me his own. Or for those of us who are over-resting who are over-sabbathing for the speak, what are the ways in which God calls us to be stewards of our time and our resources and, and the ways that God has placed us in this world? These are some ideas of, of rest uh, that I that I wanted us to be thinking about. And again, there's so much in this passage that I would love to unpack with you further if you'd like in uh, the session afterwards, the group of preacher session. Uh, but this idea of rest in Jesus, rest in Christ, whom we get our Sabbath, for sure, for at least, but also salvation, access to God the Father, access to the way things were meant to be, And back to what God intended to be. Maybe even the way that we are looking for. Is that the rest that you're looking for? Let me pray for us.